You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. His name was Grima Wormtongue. I don't recall it from the book, but in the Lord of the Rings movie, uh, this, uh, there was a significant turning point involving this uh, so-called counselor who served in the court of Theoden, king of Rohan. And the frail, feeble, bewitched Theoden had long been under the beguiling influence of this deceiver, this man who was no true counselor after all. Rather, he was a deceiving pawn of the work of evil throughout Middle-earth. Vain speech, flattering lips, two-faced deception, this is what characterized this worm of a man. But the, the turning point came when Gandalf, with newfound strength, arises to come to the aid of poor and, and needy Theoden, when he, he starts the assault for the forces of good against the footholds of evil. This scene from the movie, it reminds me of our, our psalm this morning, Psalm 12. See, the, the sins of the tongue have a powerful effect on a, on a person, on a people. And this psalm offers both comfort and affliction. Comfort for us who have been deceived or lied to. An affliction, God willing for us who have sinned with our speech. So let's pray once more that God might be pleased to use his word this morning. Use our time in it to make both the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts pleasing to him. Let's pray. So Father, we do ask that you would do that very thing. As we consider this psalm, may we reflect carefully upon the words that we have spoken. And I pray that um, the words that we speak this morning, that I speak this morning and that we speak to one another might be pleasing to you. But more importantly, oh God, I pray that the inclination of our hearts, the utterances that, that don't even make it that far, the fleeting thoughts, that those two would be pleasing to you. And that in so doing, we would be conformed ever more so into the image of Jesus. So help us by your spirit as we look at your word. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. One of the beautiful things about the Psalms is how they articulate a godly response to the full range of human experience. Fellas, you, you guys might be able to especially uh, relate to me in feeling you know, maybe not always the best at articulating my emotions, but it's true for anybody who's going through a, an intense experience. It's, it's hard to put into words all that is going on internally. And so the Psalms are a tremendous help from the Spirit to, to have this collection 
of words to serve our souls that we can turn to and read and say, yes, that, that is what I'm experiencing. That is, is what I'm feeling. And by having these words and plain black and white before us, we're comforted and helped. We're helped knowing that someone else has experienced and understood what we're going through. But the Psalms go, go further in modeling for us uh, the right response to a whole variety of situations. The Psalms are articulating for us how we feel, putting words to the things that we don't know how to express, but then it guides us. The Psalms guide us to know what we should do in response. How we can recognize where we are and then move forward in faith. But as we come to this Psalm, I want to offer a caution. I want to offer a caution about too readily identifying with the psalmist. Too readily identifying with his affliction. Now, don't get me wrong. We should identify with him, and we'll get there. But before we do, let's just pause and consider here for a little bit about how we might actually identify with the afflictor, with the one that he is lamenting about. Because before we identify with David's lament, beware of the, the temptation. Beware of the, the trendiness of, of being the victim. Beware of, of promulgating faux outrage. Those fads are lamentable because there are terrible things in our world. There are, are situations and, and sins that, that we commit and have committed uh, against us that, that ought to be responded to with outrage. But we minimize, we minimize the, the, the emotion and the, the searing pain that is being expressed by the psalmist when when that victimhood, when that outrage is, a, is more of a result of things like Starbucks not having red cups at Christmas time or our leg room on a Delta flight getting cramped. We minimize the, the pain that many of us have experienced by the sharp tongue of an abuser or an authority. So as we look at verse 2, Commentators are quick to point out that there are, are, are three kinds of speech in view here. There's lies, flattery, and double speak. The word translated lies has in view that speech which uh, is meaningless, is, is worthless. Fleeting words, those so-called harmless white lies, careless words, and, and thoughtless OMG. Flattery, of course, being those things that, that we say uh, that are at best insincere and at worst just outright falsehood. This, uh, this kind of speech is, is what would fit J.I. Packer's description that a, a partial truth masquerading as a whole truth becomes a complete untruth. 
In fact, flattery only serves to advance the position and the power of the one who is speaking. That third category, that third category is more literally translated with a heart and a heart they speak. A heart and heart they speak. The heart being symbolic of the center of thought and affections. It's with this concept of the heart that Jesus told us about how it's from the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So verse 2 describes people who are, are so duplicitous, who are so malevolent in their speech, it is as though they have two hearts. One heart, they speak what their hearer desires, and with the other heart, they think and, and act the exact opposite. Our English idiom, to be two-faced, it, it captures the, the same kind of idea, though the, the imagery isn't quite as, as vivid. So consider your words this week, your tweets and texts, the comments made to your roommate or spouse, the, the things that you, you spoke to your kids, to your colleagues. Were they careless words? Were they just disingenuous compliments? Was it outright deception? The sins of our speech can, can so often just go overlooked in our culture as one of those respectable sins. I mean, just look no further than politicians uh, on, on either side of the debate. Yet James gives us strong warnings against the sin of our tongue and the dangers of it. After all, a great forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. So David's plea, his lament, as one who suffers by the words spoken, it's simple. Save, oh Yahweh. In its simplicity, we, we hear his desperation. We hear the, the longing of his heart. Perhaps you've been there. Perhaps you're, you're there this morning. The weight of sorrow at the betrayal that, that you've experienced just presses down upon you. It presses down upon you with such force that, that all you can do is barely utter a plea. Save, oh God. It's likely hyperbole, but David, he feels utterly alone and destitute. All of the godly, all of the faithful are gone. He alone is standing in the truth. None will stand alongside with him. Who can he turn to? Who will plead his cause? Who will come to his aid? Who will stand with him? He is surrounded 
by, by a people who openly lie and flatter and deceive. And so he, he turns to his only recourse, his only friend. He does not wail on his bed, but he cries out to the Lord, Oh, save me, Yahweh. In his lament, as he focuses on the righteousness of God, it, it turns to imprecation. That's what we see in verses 3 and 4 of David's plea. He, he's turning now, asking that the, for God's damnation on those whose lips are used to cut down. But we find that not only are, are these people lying, they're brazen in it. They're flaunting it. Their confidence is in their ability to, to talk their way out of any situation, of, of any trouble that they come against. They think they can say whatever uh, they please because, after all, they will have to give no account. You can only imagine them scoffing at, at David's prayer. Yahweh? Save? Where is your God, David? <laughs> he has forsaken you. What vanity to think one is great because he can spout off a sentence. What hubris to presume one can accomplish so much because of her tweet. Who is master over us, they ask. <laughs> Save, oh, Yahweh. Really isn't true, is it? About sticks and stones and those words that never hurt. In fact, words may hurt the most. Words can cut the deepest. Words that are, are twisted and manipulated by a father to inflict you will haunt you for decades. The things said in the heat of an argument endure in the, in the memory, leaving distrust and uneasiness, suspicion for years. It's worse still yet when what has been said was, was blatantly false. It has no grounding in reality. When the accusation was baseless and, and crafted to cut down. When the, the comment served only to advance the position of the speaker. Maybe when these first four verses were read, perhaps it resonates with you because the atmosphere of deceit, it's, it's the toxic air that you breathe at work day in and day out. 
the godly one is gone. The faithful have vanished. Look at these words. You're not alone. Someone has traversed this path before you. Look around. The faithful and the godly have gathered to be renewed. You are not alone. Look up. You're not alone. God arises to draw near to you in compassion to save. So we look to verse 5 and hear the Lord's response to his prayer, to his plea, to his imprecation. And in this response, the Lord testifies to his care of his own. He doesn't just hear, but he moves to, to bring us to the safety for which we long. That last word of verse 5, longs. And the Lord says, I will place him in the safety for which he longs. That word is elsewhere translated as breath or puff. The idea being that this is such a fleeting comment. It takes such effort here just to get it out. So you can imagine David just, he's at his wit's end. There is nothing left. The, the despair of his soul is real, and he can barely utter it. Save. Save, oh Yahweh. But because of the poor and needy, the Lord arises to act. So put yourself for a moment in the throne room of the prophet Isaiah's vision from Isaiah 6. Put yourself there. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the, the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. With two wings they covered his face, and with two wings he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke." The prophet feared for his life just at the sight of it. What fear ought we to feel if the Lord arises from his throne to carry out justice against us for our fleeting words, for our flattering, boastful lips? Apart from Christ, the sins of the tongue usher us to the very foot of the righteous one. And before him, we most certainly will have to give an account. In his presence, there will be none, none who will be able to talk their way out of sure condemnation. 
There is only comfort for David here in his lamenting. There's only comfort if the Lord arises to vindicate. If the Lord arises to come against those malevolent deceivers. That's the only reason why he can find comfort is if the Lord will truly do what he says he will do. He is not just arising to save, but his deliverance comes at the condemnation of the wicked, of those who will not turn from their sin. And so when the Lord says that he will place in safety the poor and needy, those who long for deliverance, he will do it. He will do it. He has said it. It will come to pass. Nothing, nothing will hinder our Father in heaven. It's like Amazon. Right? Bear with me here. It's, it's like Amazon. Right? If you forgot your hot dogs for tomorrow's cookout, you could go on your phone and, and you know, in a few taps... It's done, right? Don't, don't do that. You're welcome for the reminder. Don't do it. We're at church. All right, so, but you could. You could just, a few clicks, buy now. It's going to be delivered, right? You don't have to think about it. Like, it's going to show up at your house. You can go and track, you know, go watch the, the tracking, the shipment tracking, but a few simple taps, you've got your hot dogs all set, how much exceedingly more sure we can be that when the Lord has said he will do something, it is as sure as done. If the Lord has decreed, if he's declared that he is going to bring to safety, he's going to do it. It's going to happen. Because the Lord does all that he pleases. And it is impossible for God to lie. All he can do is communicate unfettered truth. And it's truth that results in action. So we can rest confidently in the promises of God that when he has declared he will do it, we know that it will be done. And so we join the psalmist in declaring in verse 7 that that Yahweh will keep and guard his word. He will keep it. He will do it. The promises that he has made are trustworthy and reliable. You can take them to the bank. So Christian... We have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. When our hearts break because of deceit and betrayal, we, we cling to the promises. We look to the word to receive what the Lord has told us, knowing that because he has said it, he's going to bring it about. When we feel forsaken and alone, we flee to his pure words. We turn to him in the midst of darkness, knowing that the, the candlelight to guide our steps 
is the confidence of knowing our God hears our puffs. He hears our pleas. He hears our laments. He knows our longing for deliverance. And he arises to do it. But not only will God keep his word, not only will he keep his promises, but he will keep us. He will keep us. Look again here at verse 7 with me. The psalmist writes, You, O Lord, will keep them. Keep the words. Keep his promises. You will keep what you have said that you will do. And you will guard us from this generation forever. Our assurance to, to persevere in the faith, in the midst of lies and flattery, in the midst of two-faced deception, friends, it is, it is not in our ability to remember the promises. Our confidence Our endurance in the faith, it it does not rest on our effort to recall the word. No. No, we persevere in the faith because of him who is able to keep us. He who is able to deliver us, who will keep us from stumbling and present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That is where our confidence rests. Not my ability to remember a particular passage at a particular moment. My my confidence that I will wake up tomorrow a, a Christian is that God will keep me. That he will hold me fast. And that he will see to it that I will make it to the end. That is where our confidence lies. So friends, if you find yourself identifying with David's laments, look to Christ who is able to keep you. Look to Christ who will guard you, who will see you to the very end. However, that end it may still be far off. By concluding this psalm in verse 8 with a return to the, the prevalence of the wicked and vileness that surrounds him, I think David is indicating that his plea has not yet been answered. The Lord's pure word had not yet come about by no means indicates that the promise is void. It has just not yet come about. Yahweh will absolutely keep his word and guard his own. Verse 7. And yet, verse 8 remains to be the present situation. That's where David still finds himself with the wicked prowling on every side and vileness being exalted among the children of man. 
The Lord's delay does not mean the promise is void. By no means. It, it just means the time of fulfillment had not yet come. To reappropriate a, a phrase from C.S. Lewis, I think there's a tendency in our day towards chronological snobbery. I think we can tend to think that our time and our culture is the very worst that has ever been. I don't think that's quite true. Sure, the sins of our day can far more readily uh, be shared and, and more widely known, but I think our context is more similar to David's than it is dissimilar. We find that, that we live in the same kind of tension. We are confident of God's definitive and final deliverance, yet, yet it has not come. We can be as sure of his promises, as sure as we are that the tomb was empty, but not everything has come to fruition. And so we find verse 8. And tomorrow's Monday morning. And the broken relationships, the betrayal, the deceit, the defamation, they continue. We live in the tension of God's promises already being given, but, but not yet being fulfilled. And in that waiting... In that moment where we find ourselves, even now, we, we repent of the sins of the tongue. We evaluate our own hearts and, and the way that we conduct ourselves, the things that we say, whether verbally or written. We repent lest the Lord arise against us. And we rest by faith in God's promise to deliver. That's why at the table, we eat this bread and we drink this cup week in and week out until the Lord comes. It's in that tension, in this meal, we recognize that rock-solid truth of our deliverance from wickedness and vileness, both within and without, while simultaneously recognizing that the full realization of that deliverance is not yet here. So we eat and drink with sorrow and hope. We eat and drink in faith in the one who will keep us, who will guard us. Let's pray. So Father, we're setting our, our confidence and our trust and our hope in you alone. We need your spirit to do a, a great saving, delivering work in us. There's great wickedness and vileness around us. 
So many have suffered at the words of an abuser or an authority. And so God, I pray that you would bind up those wounds, that you would not snuff out the faintly burning wick nor break the bruised reed, but arise in compassion to deliver and to deliver not just from that experience of suffering that we walk through in this life, but that you would deliver our souls eternally. So would your spirit blow? Would your spirit move to bring about his regenerating work in our hearts? It's for the glory of Christ that we pray. And in his name we ask, amen.